Okay, thank you everyone for coming out. I hope you had a wonderful week. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 4. Today we'll be covering in Ecclesiastes uh, most of chapter 7 up to about maybe the 22nd verse. First Kings 4, verses 29 through 34. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also he spoke of trees, from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon." Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that you give us, uh, a wisdom that comes to us as untainted uh, from you. Um, However, we are still sinful beings uh, laden with this flesh that uh, we remain in. So, Father, as Christians, help us through your Holy Spirit to continually be employing your wisdom as intended. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I chose the reading about Solomon there because now we move into a large section of Ecclesiastes where he recorded some of the many proverbs he arranged. That doesn't mean that all of the proverbs uh, that he wrote were either here or in in the book of Proverbs uh, were original to him. In Ecclesiastes 12.9 at the end, we are told, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. And remember that Solomon referred to himself as Kohelet, the preacher, which means one who assembles. um, And that could have two connotations, both as an assembler of people to preach to or as an assembler of, of proverbs and wisdom or both. So 7.1 to 7.13, we're dealing with mostly better than Proverbs. This is better than that. Uh, Attempting to answer the question in the last verse of chapter 6. For who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. So reading uh, the first four verses, we'll just read them as we go. Seven, chapter 7, 1 through 4. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, uh, Verse 1a there, um, the good name is better than precious ointment. 
makes perfect sense for us as Christians and even for the welfare of a pagan society. A precious, expensive perfume or ointment was a a luxury item at that time to wash away the dust and the grime and the odors of life. But far more precious, Solomon says, is a good name. Not a great name, as Charles Bridges tells me in his commentary, but a good name. Because Solomon, of course, had the great name, didn't he? But he didn't always have the good name. But later, in 10.1 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon will remind us of how to maintain that good name, again dealing with ointment. 10.1, dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. But from 1A, we have a healthy dose of irony, but something just as true as the good name over ointment in 1B, the day of death than the day of one's birth. And the reason the day of death is better than the day of one's birth, and as it goes on, the house of mourning over the house of mirth or laughter, the reason is because sorrow is a better preacher than the feast or comedy. Remember his royal experiment in chapter 2 where Solomon set out to discover what profit there is for men under the sun. Verses 1 and 2 of the second chapter, Solomon tested even laughter. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness And of mirth, what does it accomplish? Death is better than birth because death is the end of us all under the sun. But also those who remain will learn lessons at the house of mourning. And the house of mourning is not like we're used to going to a uh, funeral, usually at a church. But this is the house of the deceased. This is someone's former home. But the living are still gathered there, family and friends. Some are still living there. But one is no longer with them. Uh, Or if he is in the other room, he's no longer the same. It's a body and not a body and soul. So the question for you this morning, if we could talk for a few minutes, what lessons are learned there? What is the message in that house And why is it more important than the lessons taught in the house of mirth? Or, in verse 2, what will the living take to heart? We're finite. You have only a limited period of time to do what's right. Okay. Time is short, uh, and we are finite. That will be us one day. Anyone else? Sort of along the same lines, but humility. Uh, it's easier to learn humility when times are hard. 
times are great. Yes. Thinking a, a little less of yourself, uh, humility over, over pride, or just skating along through the good times. Well, what are the family and friends doing there? Are they sitting around playing Scrabble? Are they talking? And if they're talking, what are they talking about? The life that was led mm-hmm. of the person who died. Talking about the, the life the person led? David Gibson and, and his uh, living life backward. I'm going to quote from it a few times this morning, especially on this top topic, because you can imagine the end of that life is death. And so that's his play on words working backward from death. Uh, he says, uh, what will they be saying about me when I'm in the other room? When my soul is no longer with me. Or I'm no longer with my body, I should say. I think it perhaps helps us to focus on the important things. Certainly mirth has its place, and, and to the extent that that's joy in these carpe diem voices, it has its it, verses, it has its place. But if we focus on the earthly things as we're, as we're in the house of mourning, uh, perhaps we will remember that you know, what good are our earthly treasures going to do us at our death? So David Gibson's book, Living Life Backward, it's really the whole point of his book, to live by starting with death and letting death's prospect focus us, teach us, kick us in the pants. (laughs) He says, since death is not the Christian's Lord, since it does not own us, then it can teach us. Death has the capacity to teach us things about love and joy that we could only learn because of death. But it does not mean that the experience of learning them is lovely or joyful. He says, lament expresses love. Living a good life means preparing to die a good death. People who live like this are fully alive, engaged with the world and their family and the goodness of creation because they know that they have it all on loan and that one day God will simply call time. But when he does, they're ready to go. Verses uh, 5 and 6. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. So here's your better than saying. That foolish laughter and the song of fools is uh, not as good as the rebuke of the wise. The foolish laughter, it's like burning thorns, all flash and noise, but not a lot of heat, not a lot of substance. You'll remember Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Open rebuke is better than love, carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We're commanded to love our neighbor But there's also a benefit to people who have trustworthy friends. 
or do something crazier, join in membership with a local church. Mm-hmm. Church membership is essential. We saw in chapter 4, the one who falls can be lifted up by his companion. And there we talked about a fall into sin along with repentance and being lifted up out of love. But what if one is carrying on willfully uh, further and further, deeper and deeper, without repentance into sin? Then the Christian rebukes their friend. And those lashes are the faithful wounds of a friend. Verse 7, surely oppression destroys a man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. So the question is, whose heart and who's the oppressor? Is this about a wise man who oppresses another? Or is this about being oppressed and how the oppressed person, if they are wise, can even be destroyed? In other words, is it the active power of inflicting suffering or the passive enduring of it? Many of the commentators seem to lean toward the passive enduring of it. But on the other hand, there's certainly an undercurrent of the wise actively oppressing as well, just as susceptible to taking a bribe as making a bribe. And you may think, well, if they're engaged in oppression and bribery, then the wise person was never truly wise. And that's a good thing to bring up here in the middle of Ecclesiastes. Because number one, even the wise sin. And how do we know that? A little louder? Thank you. Yeah. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even wise, the wise. Even the wise sin, but number two, how many, and this is a question for you, how many types of wisdom are there? Two. Okay, and, and what would those two be? Godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. What's that, Linda? Is worldly wisdom wise? One more time, I'm sorry. Is worldly wisdom wise? Ah, is worldly wisdom wise? Contextually. Yes. <laughs> that is great. Yeah, what passes for wisdom among men may not even be true godly wisdom at all. Turn to James 3. James three thirteen through seventeen. Three thirteen to seventeen. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where evil, excuse me, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, 
than peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So given, number one, that all sin, and number two, that there is the wisdom of sinful humans and godly wisdom, this stands as a clue to what may be wrong with Solomon's methodology thus far in answering the question from 1.3, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Or in 6.12, who knows what is good for man in life? kind of explains the boogeyman that Solomon keeps seeing under the sun around every corner. Habel, vanity, enigma. Verses 7 through 10. I'll repeat 7. We just dealt with it, but I want to keep them together. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. To David Gibson, this is four examples of properly utilizing God's wisdom. Extortion or bribery, impatience, anger, and nostalgia. In 7.7, The oppression, the extortion, the bribe. Gibson says even a wise person can be reduced to a fool when money is involved. He likes the funeral. Go to the funeral and listen to death's sermon about money. What are you going to do with all your extra money at your death? In verse 8, impatience. This gives a... There's a clue... um, about the the rebuke of the wise person being more beneficial than than uh, sorry than, than the uh, laughter or the song of fools because you know that rebuke just like when God rebukes us when God disciplines us it may not seem good in the moment but in the end its end is better. So it's the patient in spirit who embrace trials that move the ball further down the field in sanctification. You don't need to turn back to James, but 1, 2 through 5. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you've got to try to let patience have its perfect work. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally godly wisdom, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Charles Bridges says, The tapestry is best understood when it's complete. Or my wife's knitting. (laughs) This calls for patience. Being still, waiting, and committing the case to God. Verse 9, anger. You know, Ephesians 4.26 tells us, Be angry and do not sin. James, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Gibson, the funeral. Attend a funeral and realize that one day you'll be dead too. The anger may not be so important. And verse 10, nostalgia. 
Charles Bridges says, we do not inquire wisely as if we really can understand what it was like in the former days. We should complain not about the badness of our times, but at the badness of our hearts. That's too good. Uh, David Gibson. These things, extortion, impatience, anger, and nostalgia, are variations on escapism. Extortion escapes responsibility. Impatience escapes reality and wishing things were different than they are. Anger is a way of escaping your inability to cope with things, not being the way you want them. And nostalgia takes a vacation in the past instead of grappling with the present or looking to the future of faith. Sorry I quote these guys so much, but they just say it so much better than I could. 11 through 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. So sure, there's protection in money, but it's nothing like the protection of wisdom, of godly wisdom. 7.13, consider the work of God for who can make straight what he has made crooked. So um, you'll remember 1.15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, the kinks, and what is lacking cannot be numbered, the gaps. Solomon is reminding us that wisdom is limited, particularly wisdom in the hands of sinners. It cannot straighten out what God has made crooked, and we know only the Holy Spirit through sanctification can straighten us as well. And just think if just think of Ecclesiastes or Ecclesiastes Day, um, Solomon's Day. If we see through a glass darkly now. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, how much more darkly the believers in Old Testament times. So wisdom in the hand of sinners, even Christians struggle to employ godly wisdom. And so our use of it will be limited here under the sun. Certainly without the the help of the Holy Spirit, we will not be fully sanctified here. 14 and 15. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Here, we're reminded that just as God made our lives under the sun crooked in response to our sin, and our sin certainly played the role in that, he has appointed sovereignly good days and bad days, and our earthly future will always be unknown except for the certain death. So Solomon here encourages us to enjoy the days of prosperity, but to remember in the day of adversity that he appointed those days as well. And we know from Romans, all things work together for good. 
to them that love the Lord. Prosperity leads to joy, but the other draws attention to the realities of life and leads us to a life in faith. 16 through 18. Now, when I asked in one of the introduction classes and on one of those emails, if there were any verses in your reading through Ecclesiastes that you found confusing, to, to go ahead and bring them to class, and you guys did, I got to say that verses 7, 16 through 18 were at the top of my list. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this, and also not to remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. A call to moderation in everything, seemingly including good and evil. So it's fine to act pretty good or pretty evil. All things in moderation is the key. Begs the question if Solomon has run off the rails completely. Well, many of the commentators bail him out, treat them as strictly orthodox. There's another viewpoint, that of Craig Bartholomew and others, that would say, yeah, he, he ran the train off the rails and into the mountain. I think both are intriguing to consider, and I'll ask for your thoughts in a few minutes. The first interpretation says that Solomon is warning us away from two opposing moral dangers. That's not about being excessively righteous, but about self-righteousness. To not think yourself overly righteous or overly wise, which should recall verses from the Bible, uh, not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think, or perhaps taking heed lest you fall, or as Jesus said, to watch, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. In this vein, Charles Bridges adds, verse 16 is a wholesome caution against the vain affectation of righteousness, religion in the externals, or in making sins where God has not intended them. Now, who was good at making sins where God had not intended them? The Pharisees. Likewise, do not be overly wise as to avoid all pretensions to superior wisdom, which we should not be doing since we are sinners. And that in verse 17, the other danger to be avoided is, is just absolute capitulation to evil. Michael Eaton says, it does not imply that wickedness in moderation is acceptable. The preacher just recognizes wickedness as a fact of human experience. As we talked about in Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Eaton says the right path walks between two extremes, shunning self-righteousness, but not allowing one's native wickedness to run its own course. And so in verse 18, the two dangers are revisited. Avoid them both. And of course, as we heard in 5.7, when Solomon went to worship, you remember, walking prudently. We should live this way before God as we fear him. Now, the second interpretation, 
doing okay on time. Uh, I struggled with this one. I was trying to understand where Craig Bartholomew was coming from. It's interesting. It's certainly true of Solomon that he was not a perfect man. No man ever has been except for Christ. But it boils down to Bartholomew's opinion that this is indeed to be moderate in both and excessive in neither, written out of sheer frustration by Solomon at all the vanity he was seeing around him. Solomon had just written in verse 15 about the righteous perishing and the wicked's life being prolonged. Again, the reversal of this character consequence dichotomy from Deuteronomy that the righteous person will be blessed and the unrighteous, the wicked, will be cursed as seen in length of days and the number of children or the lack thereof. We've seen in the first Habel story that did not seemingly end well under the sun for Abel, whose name is Habel. Abel died and a wicked murderer Cain flourished. Bartholomew argues as a result of Solomon's observations of a twisted and lacking creation, those kinks and gaps. Solomon here is using another kind of wisdom, a man-centered wisdom. And I suspect he's referring to that wisdom from James 3, which is earthly, sensual, demonic. Using human reasoning alone, along with his observation scientifically, as a substitute for wisdom. And we're all guilty of that. So Bartholomew says Solomon's shocking advocacy of moderation is more a despairing protest than a viable way forward. And his promotion of moderation, or at least protest with it, is from his struggle with theodicy, the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. And so Bartholomew concludes that this demonstrates Solomon's autonomous, I govern myself, I control my own affairs. Scientific empirical approach to life is unable to discern what is good for humans, making all appear to him empty, vain, and enigmatic. Now, if that interpretation were correct, then we have some real a real heretical statement in our Bible, but I would doesn't concern me if that were the case. I do lean to the conventional interpretation, and we'll be interested to hear what you say for a few minutes. But look at Jonah four. Uh, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, "Ah, Lord." Was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Almost accusing God like that's a bad thing. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out the city, skipping a verse. Jonah went out the city, sat on the east side of the city. And it happened when the sun arose, God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished, this is his last words, he wished death for himself and said, it's better for me to die than to live. 
Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. Well, that was some real heresy there. Considered Job in the same sense. God answers him out of the whirlwind. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You know, some of that earthly wisdom. So Solomon's life raises the question, what happens when the end is not better than the beginning? A child asking for the right gift of God, wisdom, so he could lead God's people rightly, and getting everything else from God along with that, other blessings, to a man in his old age possibly worshiping demons, honoring them for sure. Yet we're told at his birth that God loves Solomon, and I have no doubt that God or that Solomon is with his father now. But what if the very crookedness he complained of became his own crookedness and hampered his employment of godly wisdom? First Kings eleven went after his uh, wives, seven hundred wives, gods, Ashtoreth, Milcom built high places to Chemosh and Molech. I don't know if those are demons or if they're just imaginations of people with their small g gods. 700 of them? Anyway. We're doing great on time. So um, what do you all think about that? Um, These verses in particular. Because uh, i got to say, the first time you read them, they kind of punch you in the face. Like, what? What did I just read, you know? Um, be curious to hear your thoughts about that or what, what you think about Bartholomew's potential take. The first thing I thought of when you read, when we read those is um, one of the four cardinal virtues is temperance. So, I mean, that's, I think... It's just a kind of a poetic way of reminding you to not be at the extremes of the virtue is to be in the middle. Okay. To uh, to exercise temperance. Anybody else? Thoughts? In chapter one and chapter two, there's a lot of time spent. This is the section on able. Uh, or the references able in Genesis 2, there's a lot of time spent on wisdom's failure. Um, that is brought up or revisited again, uh, starting at verse 15. So I don't know, I think he's on to something. Okay. The uh, Referring back to chapter 1 and, and uh, wisdom still being a, a cause to see vanity, certainly earthly wisdom. Um, funny enough, I debated <clears throat> going a little further than verse 22 today. We're going to start next week with, with him. Verse 24, as for that which is far off wisdom from verse 23 and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? And you're certainly taken to Job, who, who couldn't, who couldn't uh, I think I've got that here. Uh, Job, who couldn't, uh, didn't know the place of wisdom. I, um, I first thought of Adam and Eve and how Eve lost 
for God's wisdom just ultimately cursed the world and destroyed them. Right. That's great, Vinny. Um, thinking of Adam and Eve, um, they went after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have that idea of knowledge again and exalting uh, autonomy and, and, and knowledge over godly wisdom. David Gibson, uh, life eludes our control, so how then should we live? Flee reality, number one. Numb the pain. Party, laugh, drink, live in the past, or a land of make-believe instead of the present. Or two, the way of wisdom, learning to live wisely in God's word in the midst of all the brokenness. But the wisest thing you can do is to realize that not even being wise will tell you everything you need to know. Part of living wisely is learning to live with the limitations of wisdom itself. The limitations of wisdom in sinners' hands. This is a consistent theme. Here it is in the Bible's wisdom literature. As Job understood in Job 28, 20-23, the place of wisdom and understanding is concealed, but God knows the place. So let's finish with 19-22. through 22. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. So again, uh, verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. Another better than proverb, this is obviously wisdom in governing, but it does leave one to wonder once the Pandora's box is opened of uh, questioning exactly which wisdom are you using, Solomon, uh, whether that wisdom in the hands of these rulers, is these sinners, is going to be mishandled or not. Will they distort it and oppress the poor? as in chapter 4. So verse 20, there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So here we come to the verse that is the linchpin behind all of Solomon's mishandling of God's wisdom. In his sinful royal experiment, in his 700 wives and 300 concubines, and in his worship of their false gods. Does anyone remember when Solomon's heart Turned away to other gods? When in his life? I'm afraid so. I mean, the very end, the last day, the last year, I don't know, but in 1 Kings 11 4, it says, For it came to pass when Solomon was old. This is the baby that was loved by God. And he's still loved by God. But this is the young boy who, who asked for wisdom to rule the people, God's people. It came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father.
So Solomon did what every other person before or since has done, as verse 20 reads, for there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Now, many believe that this, is, this verse is quoted in the New Testament. And if so, it's the only verse in Ecclesiastes quoted in the New Testament. Can anyone think of what that verse would be? I would have said the same thing even before that, but leading up to that. Um, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's the lead up to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It seems to be why Solomon sees Habel or vanity, enigma, a vapor, a brevity, and insubstantiality all around him. And speaking of sin, do we all sin because of Satan? As in the devil made me do it? Why do we sin? sinners. James 1, boy, we're going there a lot. 13 to 15 reads, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. I remember as a young Christian blaming all my sin on Satan until I read that. Uh, But remember that Paul follows Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, with the glorious truth that just as all have sinned, we are justified by grace through Christ and his redemption. And this is how God is making things straight and filling in those gaps so lastly 21 and 22 the servant you hear cursing you rather than being offended at it realize that you're a sinner too and why even be offended when we know that our own mouths James again James 3 have poured out fresh and bitter water both and why even listening at the door to hear what your servant says anyway. Sometimes it's almost like we we wish to be offended if only to feed our our own self-righteousness. All right, so we'll pick up at 7.23 next time. Try to get through the end of all the way through 8 if um, you want to read that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who sanctifies, um, who gives us hope. Thank you, Lord, that as Christians, uh, despite falls into sin, we can look back and see as we get older and older a real progression and a real help. Uh, let, it, let us not uh, make us uh, non-watchful. Lord, uh, let us never think that on this side of death that uh, we will be perfect, but to keep fighting and uh, keep trying to, through your Holy Spirit, uh, through your wisdom, not through our own knowledge and experience or toughness, 
but in simply relying on your strength, knowing that we can do all things through you who strengthen us. Lord, help us to, uh, to keep pushing and keep pressing on in this race and growing uh, more alike to you. Lord, help us as we go to worship. Help us to walk prudently and guard our steps as we enter uh, the sanctuary. Um, thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Enable us to worship you aright. In Jesus' name, amen.